Do not call it a comeback. Been here for years, but not the last two weeks. So, as some of you may have noticed, I took a little bit of a hiatus last week. Needed uh, somewhat of a little mental break. We usually don't miss a week, and we make sure that we have a podcast every single week. But sometimes, as Cat Williams says, it's very important to take care of your star player. So that's what I did last week, but I'm here this week for y'all. My name is Waldo. Welcome to the Regulators Podcast. It has been a very exciting couple of weeks. Lots of things have happened, so we're going to catch you up and talk about everything going on in the NFL. We are also going to break down the running back position headed into the 2022 NFL Draft and, of course, tell you about all kinds of awesome things we have coming up on the horizon, including some special things that we're doing for the draft. So we will be live in Miami for the entire first round of the draft. So if you can't get to a television, if you're stuck at work, but you're able to uh, get some sound on, get some headphones in, then we will have your draft coverage live on draft night. And not to mention, including the coverage, we will have a ton of giveaways. And we're still securing a lot of things this week getting everything lined up, but in the next coming weeks, we are going to make very sure, very sure to let you guys know about all the awesome contests and giveaways and everything that we're going to have for the draft. We did this last year, and it was one of our best shows ever, and it's going to be a lot of fun, lots of special guests, and uh, hope you guys will check that out come time for the draft. Now, speaking of giveaways, You know, the past week we had another Funko Pop. For whatever reason, that seems to be the most popular with you guys, and I am a man of the people. So when you guys ask, I try to deliver. So last week we had a Patrick Mahomes Funko Pop up for grabs and asked you guys to retweet it and get it out there. Had a ton of you enter, and we pulled a name, and this week's winner is at I Hate. K-E-B. I hate Keb. I don't know who Keb is or why you hate him, but congratulations. You are the winner of the Mahomes Funko Pop. Feel free to DM us. To everybody else, do not be discouraged. There are plenty of giveaways, plenty of things going on, and at some point in this episode, we will tell you how to get in ahead of everybody else on the very next giveaway. So, Let's get right into it, and let's talk about one of the things that just happened, and that is the adjustment of the NFL overtime rule. Now, this has been a topic of much debate, and if you follow the show and you know have seen my discussions on this in the past, my statement and stance on this is very clear. The way that the overtime was previously set up, there was nothing wrong with it, Okay. Everybody is complaining because of a one-off situation with the Chiefs and the Bills in the playoffs last year, and everyone was like, well, it wasn't fair because, you know, the the Bills should have got another chance. They they had several chances. In fact, there was a 60-minute football game I think a lot of people missed before the overtime even happened, 
And then at the conclusion, specifically in the last 13 seconds of that football game, the number one defense in the NFL allowed Patrick Mahomes to go 50 yards in 13 seconds, thus forcing the overtime in the first place. And then when the Chiefs got the ball in overtime, that team could not stop them again. So you couldn't stop them back-to-back times. What makes you think you would stop them a third time? See, this is this is my problem with arguments, right? You have to have a fundamental argument. You have to have a stance that doesn't get holes poked through it immediately. And that's my problem. I would be willing to concede if somebody said, well, you know what? It's not fair. The coin toss decided who won that football game. No, it didn't. The previous 60 minutes and other things decided. But sure, let's let's say you're right. The coin toss decided it, right? It was a foregone conclusion. So, okay, the Chiefs get the ball. They score. Bills should have got a chance to go down and score a touchdown. So let's say the Bills had gotten that chance. They go down. They score a touchdown. Now where do we go from here? What What is the next step from here? Because you only have two possible answers. Option one is to say, well... Now it's sudden death. Well, in, in which case, if now it's sudden death, why? Why is that fair? Because why should it be sudden death? Let's say the Chiefs then go down and score again. Don't the Bills get another opportunity? Why, how, how? How would that be fair? Why do you cut it off at possession 24 or 25? That's the thing. People don't understand that in the typical game, NFL teams have over 20 possessions to win the game. Okay, so there's 20 possessions back and forth, offense and defense. It's a battle to win the game. And then you're like, no, you know, 24 combined possessions, like, didn't get it done. But 26, 26 seems fair to me. Like, that's ludicrous. It doesn't make any fucking sense. And if you were to say, well, no, they should just both keep getting chances until one of them doesn't make it. We should apply, you know, college or high school rules, like... And then what? Like, you can't, you can't just change the rule because it doesn't fit your narrative. And that's what I think happened here is the NFL had a complete knee-jerk reaction to create a solution for a problem that didn't exist. And here's another thing that I don't like. The bias that's being spun to sell us on this, right, is that, well, in the playoffs under the current format, 10 of the 12 teams who won in 12 games, 10 of the teams who won was the team who got the ball first. That does seem slightly like, okay, well, this might, I know it's only a small sample size of 12 games, but if 10 teams got the ball first, they went down and scored and they won, maybe it really is a little biased, but that's not the case. 10 of those 12 teams won the game, but 10 of those 10 12 teams did not score on their very first possession. Seven of those 12 teams scored on the first possession. Another three of those winners, they got the ball first, but then they couldn't score. Then the other team got the ball, and then they got the ball back, and then they ended up winning the game. So you can't use that 
and a lot of people are trying to add context. They'll say, well, 10 of 12 teams, you know, who got the ball first won, and seven of them scored on the first possession, scored a touchdown. Well, but why are you even mentioning the first part? Why are you mentioning the first part? If you know that it's not relevant, if you understand that you're trying to create this context that it's an unfair advantage, why would you even mention the 10 out of 12? Because if they didn't score on the first possession, that's all this rule has to do with. So 7 out of 12. So, okay, now it's 7 out of 12. It's still slighted, you know, towards one direction. But when you compare 7 to 5, it's a lot different than 10 to 2. And it's still, again, a small sample size. And you might be asking yourself, well, why are they using only the playoffs as a sample size? Because if you look at the NFL as a whole, since the NFL adopted the current overtime rules, 52% of the time, in all of the overtime games that have happened, 52% of the time, the team who received the ball first did end up winning in overtime. 52%. But that's a lot closer, right? 52%, you know, that doesn't really push the narrative, whereas we say, well, only in the playoffs. There have only been 12 games. And that's the thing. Think about that. There's only been 12 games that we can go to for reference that have happened. And in seven of them, the team who got the ball first one on the first possession but it's such a problem that we need to change it why don't you look at it as a whole that's the only thing i can't st- I, i'm i'm here for every take that you have no matter how ridiculous if you have an opinion if you have something that is based in reality then bring it to the table but to just be disingenuous i absolutely hate that i absolutely hate that so again 52% of all overtime, when you include the regular season, has been in favor of the team who got the ball first. But I mean, when you talk about the amount of games that that's happened, it's oh, it's never going to be 49.9% to 50.1%. That's not how it works. That's not how the law of averages works. That's just not how it is. And we should always try to look at parity and ways to improve the game, and I understand this. But this was purely... A solution to a problem that didn't exist. And you want further proof? Here's where I nip this entire argument in the butt, right? Because the argument that we get is that, well, come playoff time, the teams that are left in the playoffs have elite offenses. So it's more favored in the case of the offense. Okay, you know what? It's a well thought out argument. You're wrong, but it's a well thought out argument and I can respect it. But here's my counter to that. Number one, there's actually more elite defenses as well when you get to the playoffs at that point. And you can go pull the receipts and look at the top 10 uh, defensive teams that make the playoffs and end up winning the Super Bowl and look at the offensive teams and it favors the defense. But let's put that aside for a second, okay? Here's the statistic that ends this argument. There is not now, nor has there been, a single team in the NFL that scores at a higher rate than 50% offensively. No team has ever even hit 50%. So what I'm explaining to you, 
let me slow it down because I know I get a little excited, is if in a given game, your team possesses the ball 15 times, okay? You have 15, let's, for easy math, let's make it 16 because someone's going to be a dick. I can see it. I can see it now. So at six, 16 possessions that you have in the game, let's say you score on eight of them, which would be amazing. That would be a 50% scoring rate. Okay? You with me? So what I'm telling you is there, there has never been a team that has scored even 50% of the time. So why am I telling you this? What does this mean? What this means is that on every given possession, the defense is more likely to force a punt, a turnover, or turnover on downs than the offense is to score. No matter what team you put up there, whether it's the Chiefs, no matter the Bengals, the Chargers, it doesn't matter. Nobody scores at a 50% clip. Nobody. Not even the best offenses. So if you're telling me that the best offenses in the NFL aren't even scoring at a 50% rate, then how are you going to explain to me that them getting the ball first on offense is an absolute advantage to them? That's not the case. Now, the only way that I used to slide a little bit towards this argument and I give it I gave it credence because I knew what the stats said was when you only needed a field goal to win. When it was true sudden death and you only had to get just across to get into field goal range, then yes, the numbers were more in your favor to make that argument. And that's why I liked what the NFL did in saying, "All right, if you can't go down the field 80 yards, or wherever you end up after the kick return, and score a touchdown, the other team gets a chance to at least kick a field goal, tie it up, or you know, how, however that ends up, and then from there it would be sudden death. I liked that move. I thought that was a great move. But if you're telling me that there's not a single team in the NFL that scores at a 50% clip, and then in the same breath telling me that it's automatically a huge advantage for the offense that they get the ball first, then you're being disingenuous. Those two things cannot equal in the same space. It just, it doesn't comply. Now, what you can do is you can look at statistics over quarters, say first, second, third, fourth, and you can see that a lot of the scoring tends to happen towards the end of games for a number of reasons. And that's something we could do a very deep dive in, right? And we could go over years and years worth of data to say, okay, well, technically by the time it goes to overtime, you know, this is what's more likely to happen. But guess what? We don't have to. We already have that data. That's the data of all the overtime games, including the regular season, which has shown that 52% of the time, the team that wins that coin toss is going to win the game. So again, 52% 52% is reasonable because it's it's never going to land exactly on a 50-50. That's just, that's not how life works. But 52 is reasonable in that aspect, okay? And number two, you had a fucking hour to win the game. You had tons of possessions. You had tons of 
Third downs, fourth downs, both on offense, on defense. You had chances to make stops, to make turnovers. You had chances to score extra points. You know how many games go to overtime because someone misses a field goal? Because somebody was on offense and couldn't get the game-winning kick in regulation? So just miss me with this bullshit that all of a sudden we were all hyped up because we were seeing this powerhouse playoff game with all of a sudden this these offenses going toe-to-toe, and we just wanted more of it. Of course we want fucking more of it. I'm watching week five NFL games from last year like I've never seen them before tonight, getting hyped out of my mind because football is fucking amazing. And no matter how much we get, we will always want more. But you know what? Be self-aware. I can respect someone who's self-aware. But don't come at me with this bullshit like it's not fair because after you know, on-field time of an hour plus, game time, actual time of three plus hours, you couldn't get it done, and then you're going to blame it that you didn't get another chance. Where again, I, I can't wait till the first time this happens and one team scores a touchdown, next team goes down and scores a touchdown, and then they're like, well, now it's sudden death. And they're like, well, that's not fair. We need to change the rules again. Stop it. Just please do me a favor and stop it. And while we're on the subject of things that we need to stop talking out of our ass about, let's talk about the salary cap again. Because you know what? For the life of me, it blows my mind that people I formerly considered intelligent will tell you things like the salary cap is not real. And I don't mean the fans. I don't mean people who listen to this podcast. You know, there's a lot of people out there who are still trying to find their way. And that's why I'm here to guide you. There are a lot of people out there who, you know, are a fan of the sport in general. They're trying to learn. But they hear professionals. They hear, I mean, turn on any sports debate show and you will see completely opposite takes from both sides of the desk and both people would lead you to believe that they're very informed so i don't fault the fans but i fault the talking heads that are putting bullshit narratives out there and that's why i'm glad tom pelicero stood on his soapbox the other day i think he was on uh, good morning football and just went off talking about how real the salary cap is. And he's right. Because what always amazes me is to see paid professionals who cover the NFL for a living telling you, the fan, that the salary cap is a myth, that the salary cap is not real. Because let me tell you something. All of these people are paying a 24.9% APR on an 07 BMW. Like... It's like having a credit card and saying, well, the money's not real. So I can just buy whatever I want because the money's not real. That bill comes due, and I'm going to give you some examples. So let's talk about the Atlanta Falcons, which this is not shade to the Falcons because I'm very proud of them. I'm very proud of the Atlanta Falcons. But let's talk about what happened. The Atlanta Falcons are going to eat $40 million in dead cap for Matt Ryan's contract this year alone. This year alone, 40 mil, dead cap. They have over $60 million total in dead cap. 
for 2022. That's practically a third of the cap. And when people say, oh, but that's just money they can't spend. That's not, they didn't spend that. No, they did spend that money. They spent it last year and the year before and the year before. That's what happens when you convert all of these salaries to bonuses and kick that can down the road. You now have $60 million less to spend than the other teams. So if you have $60 million less and you have needs and they have $60 million more and they have needs, which team do you think would be able to strike a better competitive balance? You'd think probably the team that doesn't have $60 million in dead cap space, right? I mean, that's more than superstar quarterback money. That's just a ridiculous amount of money. I mean, I give teams shit when they have $20 mil in dead cap space or $30 mil. $60 million in dead cap space? That's fucking insane. But the Falcons did what they had to do. What they had to do was rip the Band-Aid off. Because this was always going to be ugly. They kept kicking Matt Ryan's contract down the road to where he was going to get 40, 45, 50 million dollars in a single year. I'm sorry, but Matt Ryan is not worth that. So, this is where it came to. And you've got a new regime that came in last year. And they could either try to bite the bullet and do some magic or they could rip the band-aid off and say, you know what? We're going to eat it all now. Just eat it, get it done, let's get rid of all of our bad contracts, let's move on from these things, and let's start this rebuilding process. So, kudos to the Falcons for having the guts to rip the band-aid off. However, that doesn't excuse the situation that it is a lot of dead cap, that they, they put themselves, not the current front office, but they put themselves in this situation, and now they have to make up for it. And that's fine. Which brings me to the Saints. A lot of people get really mad at me when I talk about the Saints' cap situation. And the reason I get the angriest with the Saints is because they haven't pulled the fucking Band-Aid off. Let me give you an example. The New Orleans Saints ate $13 million in dead cap space this year the second that Teron Armstead became a free agent. So they had, up until the point where his contract voided to restructure him and try to kick that can down further down the road. And now they're paying $13 million against the cap. Now, again, the money's already been spent. Like, I understand that. But now it's coming out of this year's cap. Just to, again, just to make sure that everybody illustrates and understands the idea. Let's say, hypothetically, the cap is $200 million every single year. You go out this year and you spend $250 million. People are like, well, how can you spend that if you don't have it? It's basically a credit card with no interest. Okay? So what happens is you take that extra $50 million, you kick it down the road to next year, or the year after that, you, you spread it over. But make no mistake, if we've got $600 million over three years, we've still got $600 million over three years. So if you spend three hundred in year one, You've only got 150 next year and 150 the following year. So you're putting yourself at a competitive disadvantage. So again, 
There are so many teams. Look at the Texans. Texans were in a tricky situation because of the Deshaun Watson situation and a lot of other self-inflicted things, but they have over $50 million in dead cap this season. The Seahawks and the Bears, over $44 million in dead cap. Yet, there are teams with less than $5 million in dead cap. Half the league has less than $10 million in dead cap. So, this this narrative that it's not real, it is real. The Titans eat $13 million in dead cap for releasing Julio Jones with the post-1 June 1st designation. They're paying Julio Jones $13 million to not be on the team this year. And yes, well, technically they already paid him that. Yes, but they spent $13 million that they didn't have last year. Does that make sense? Like, do you, do you understand? It's, it's like, I, I don't know how else I can break it down. The, the bill comes due. And sure, you technically already spent the money. But when there's 32 teams in the NFL... And some of them are playing with $210 million in salary cap. And you're playing with 160, 170. It's not the same thing. You can't acquire the same players. You can't get the same level of talent. And that's how you bankrupt franchises. Not in the literal sense that the billionaires will run out of money. But in the talent sense that your team becomes devoid of any winning structure because you are tying a cinder block to its feet and throwing it in the fucking Hudson River. So, some people need to sit down and have some serious conversations with their front office. Speaking of people who allegedly had some serious conversations and sit-downs, let's talk about the Cleveland Browns. I was off last week, so we didn't get a chance to talk about this, and it's all anybody wanted me to talk about for two years, and I said, when it happens, when there's something to say, I'll say it. So yes, Deshaun Watson pulled an ejecto cito cuz, and there was no Falcons, there was no Saints. He went to the Browns. And huge, huge signing and acquisition for the Browns, who obviously gave him the most guaranteed money that's ever fucking happened. Um... I don't know. It's tough because the AFC is the AFC. And if you if you haven't noticed what's going on, then you're just not paying attention, which is fine. Maybe you just follow your team, but catch up to speed because the AFC is just a total Royal Rumble right now. Having said that, I don't know how you don't automatically catapult the Browns into being... I, I don't speak in absolutes, so I don't want to say... A sure thing, but practically assured at the playoffs. Make no mistakes. We can think what we want about Deshaun Watson off the field, and I certainly have my thoughts. I'm sure you do too. And we could talk about it all day, but we know what the NFL is about, and we understand what happened. But the fact remains that he is one of the most talented quarterbacks to step foot on the field ever. He is the most accurate quarterback in NFL history, and he is electric on the football field. When you add that to how capable the Cleveland Browns were with Baker Mayfield, I mean, it should it should really be a no-fucking-brainer. I mean, you understand, 
the Browns played a game this past season against the Chargers where I think they scored 42 points and they lost. Like, which, you know, they don't give up that many points every single game. But the point is, is the Browns' offense is is a very good offense. And you add a playmaker like Deshaun Watson, the Browns' potential just went through the fucking roof. And the fact that he's going to be there for years to come and they paid him all their money and stuff like that. So if he's healthy... Browns are absolutely contenders. And this isn't like the year before I think we saw what the Browns did in 2020 and we all had really high expectations because we were like, oh, you know, Baker's getting it. You know, it's coming together and the offense is clear. This No, no, no. This is not the same thing. This is not the same thing. With Deshaun Watson, that team is the sky truly is the limit. And people in Cleveland who have not denounced the franchise over personal beliefs should be very fucking excited for Browns football this year. I mean, like, in a way they have not been possibly ever unless you're old enough to remember Jim Brown. So, let's talk about some other signings. Von Miller, $120 million, six years to the Buffalo Bills and that is a great signing by the Bills. The Bills already had the number one defense in the NFL. Now you add Von Miller. Von Miller doesn't need to be five years ago Von Miller. Von Miller will come in. He will play his role, and he will contribute. And I think that no way he sees that six-year contract, maybe half of that if he's lucky. But the Bills are so close. They're right there on that precipice, as we know, this whole kerfuffle over the overtime bullshit. Excellent, excellent pickup for the Buffalo Bills. The Kansas City Chiefs added to their TikTok resume when they signed Juju Smith-Schuster, who claims he will not be doing TikToks with Jackson Mahomes, but we'll see how long that lasts. One of them will be duetting or stitching the other. If you don't know what that is, you need to catch up. Um, I, I, I do like that the younger crowd keeps me young. You know, I'm hip. I'm with it. I'm down with the kids. So other signings around the league, the Miami Dolphins signed Teron Armstead to a five-year, $87 million signing. He was one of the top tackles on the market, if not the top tackle. Obviously, you have to be concerned about the injury history. He doesn't typically make it through an entire season, but when he's on the field... I mean, the guy plays amazing. So we'll see how it works out. I, I applaud the Dolphins for at least addressing the position. I also applaud them for some of the other moves they made. They signed Raheem Mostert, Mostert um, which is one of the fastest guys in the NFL, not including someone we'll talk about in a little bit. But the Dolphins have gone out and signed a slew of people on offense. They've traded, they've signed, they just, offensive side of the ball, there's no lip service to the we're putting pieces around Tua. This is this is it, they're doing it. They're absolutely doing it. Um, the Atlanta Falcons, as we'd mentioned previously, they re-signed Cordero Patterson, which makes me both happy and sad. I'm happy because I think Cordero Patterson was amazing last year in Arthur Smith's system. I think he's a dynamic playmaker. I think that, you know, it's awesome that they kept one of their best pieces. However, what's the plan at quarterback now and how long? We already talked about how you're going to have to eat all of this dead cap. So 
there's nothing this year. You're in a complete rebuild. So that's a little sad, wasted year for Cordero Patterson, who is not exactly a spring chicken. Um, and then what's your plan for next year? Because sadly, that's where the Falcons have to be thinking is you're already looking towards next year because this year is going to be ugly. I would be very surprised and uh, pleasantly surprised surprised if the Atlanta Falcons were able to win eight or nine games this season. I think that would be a huge coup for them, and it would be great going into the next season. A team that already won a lot of games last year, including the AFC Championship, is the Cincinnati Bengals. So this is another team that I'm proud of, man. They signed Lyle Collins, three years, $30 million, and Cincinnati was 30th in pass block win rate last year. So they went out, they grabbed them a few linemen, they're already addressing it, they still have the draft if they want to shore up any other positions, but they went and addressed their biggest fucking need. We know why the Bengals lost. They, they won in spite of that 30th pass block win rate. They won in spite of their offensive line. But now, if you can get the offensive line playing well, then sky's the fucking limit for that offense. They also signed Hayden Hurst to replace C.J. Uzama, who left for the Jets. The Panthers signed D.J. Moore to a four-year extension. And the Patriots actually brought Super Bowl hero Malcolm Butler home on a two-year deal, which I thought was interesting because a lot of people wondered kind of how that whole thing played out if you don't remember, Malcolm Butler went from Super Bowl hero when he was the guy who picked off Russell Wilson in the Seattle Patriots Super Bowl at the one-yard line. It's the famous Brian Flores, Malcolm Go, which you know was still one of my favorite play calls of all time. And if you get to watch that from the sideline cameras and see B-Flow send him in and what they were trying to do, like it's just like those. That's the chess game. Those are the tiny moments within a game that just change history forever. So he went from the heights of being that Super Bowl hero to all of a sudden somewhat falling out of favor with Bill Belichick. And next thing you know, he gets benched in the Super Bowl. And nobody knows why. And it starts to become a thing. And then obviously he leaves. And I think he went to Tennessee. And, you know, now he's back with Bill. So obviously the relationship couldn't have been that salty. Otherwise, he wouldn't have come home. Um, but good for the Patriots because they have holes there. I still can't believe they let J.C. Jackson walk. I wonder if they bring Stephon Gilmore home. We'll have to see how that kind of defensive backfield shakes out. The Ravens. Signed Zadarius Smith for four years. And before missing last season, Smith had 12 and a half sacks in 2020. And I think people forget that. That was the third best in the NFL. Zadarius Smith is a monster. And this is a huge signing for the Ravens. Huge signing. Um, I'm, I'm both excited for him and terrified for other teams in the AFC North who will have to face him so you're damn right the Bengals are loading up on offensive linemen finally because shit's gonna get very interesting the Los Angeles Rams gave Allen Robinson three years 46 million dollars I think this is a great deal and I think that 
Allen Robinson is going to finally show on a national level what most of us have known for a long time, that if he's not playing with the likes of Blake Bortles and Mitch Trubisky, this guy is a star. He's a fucking star, and he's worth every penny that the Rams gave him. So he's going to be someone who is going to shoot up your fantasy boards. Keep him circled for this year's draft, and yeah, he's going to be someone you want to grab sooner rather than later. The Seattle Seahawks re-signed Rashard Penny, who not only had the highest yards per carry last season in the NFL, but had the most yards per carry after contact. So it wasn't just huge holes opening up. Rashad Penny is the man. And I think this was a great signing by Seahawks. Again, we can talk about like the Falcons situation. Who's your quarterback? Is it Drew Locke? Because if so, I don't know what that entails or how long that project will last. Um, but it'll be interesting to see how how that shakes out going into the season and you know what that running back room looks like and who they have at quarterback because Rashad Penny could definitely be another fantasy target for you. Now, Super Bowl Lenny, Leonard Fournette, comes back to Tampa and Daddy Tom. Three years, $21 million. Good deal for him to come back and try to make another run with Brady and the Buccaneers. And that brings us to our trades. I've already mentioned, obviously, Watson to the Browns. $230 million guaranteed. Yes, that is way more than Mahomes' half a billion dollar contract. $90 million more, in fact. Also, Deshaun Watson's base is only a million dollars this year. So if he is suspended for any reason, it's not even going to touch this dude's wallet. Now remember, the Texans allegedly, according to Jay Glazier, according to PFF, according to several of these outlets, um, allegedly last year the Texans turned down three number ones, three number threes, because they thought they could get so much more for Deshaun Watson before any of his criminal charges were settled. They end up with three number ones, one three, and two fourths. So how are you going to tell me that you had a much better deal on the table last year when for all you knew... He was going to be criminally convicted. There was going to be issues. Um, and now you took a less deal. That's why I didn't buy that. I didn't buy it then. I bought that that's what they were trying to get for him. And that's what they were working on deals for. But if you had that for something that wasn't worked out yet, no way you don't pull the trigger on that. So they wait another year. And let's not forget, they ate money. They paid him his full salary to sit at home in the hopes that they would appease him to waive his no trade clause to wherever he wanted to go. Now you could say, well, yeah, but if he wanted to go to Cleveland and Cleveland wasn't offering that, then, you know, maybe they really did have better offers somewhere else. But that was always going to be the case. That was always going to be. So either one of those things was true. Either A, you never had that offer, you were hoping that's what you would get, or B, you did have the offer, someone was crazy enough to go out and say, yeah, sure, fuck it, I'm in, and Deshaun Watson said, no, I'm not going to go there. 
So, again, like our previous conversation about overtime, both can't be true. This isn't the multiverse. The opposing things can't exist in the same space. Now, one thing that is very fascinating is the Cleveland Browns play the Miami Dolphins this season at Hard Rock Stadium. And if the people in the scheduling department do not make that a Monday night football game, if they don't make that a primetime game, then they have not been paying attention to what's been going on in the NFL in the past few years. That better be a primetime game because it's going to be interesting and it's going to have storylines for months that will be regurgitated and just beat like a dead horse. So NFL scheduling department, do the right thing. Put that game in primetime. Now, I know people will say, well, he also plays the Texans this year. Yeah, but that's his former team. He like It's not like the Texans traded him because they thought he was Baker Mayfield. No offense to Baker Mayfield. Like It's not like they thought he was shit. It was what it was. He wanted out. They traded him. But the Dolphin thing, if you haven't been paying attention, the talk around Tua and the Dolphins were trading for Watson for like the past two years and this has been a thing and it was a done deal and keep your eyes on it. Every week, keep your eyes on it. It's It could be happening this week. It might be tomorrow. Maybe it's yesterday. We don't fucking know. And then it never, never, ever, ever, ever happened. And that could be for various reasons. But that needs to be a primetime game. My other... PSA before we leave the topic of Deshaun Watson to the Browns fans who always had the Big Ben jokes yeah you know who I'm talking to everybody had the jokes about Big Ben you know rapeless burger all the sexual assault jokes I want to keep that same energy keep that same fucking energy unless you're going to post tweet tag me in it and say my name is at username, and I am a hypocrite. And then you do whatever you want, but at least you're self-aware. And I can respect that a little bit more than somebody who's just a complete hypocrite. So, let's talk about Matt Ryan to the Colts. Matt Ryan got traded to the Colts for a third-round draft pick. Now, first of all, this immediately makes the Colts better. In fact, we put a survey out just to see how everyone out there in the Twitter streets felt. And overwhelmingly, over 80% of you said that Matt Ryan is an immediate upgrade to Carson Wentz. And I don't think you're wrong, even at this stage in Matt Ryan's career. And I think people forget how good the Colts really were last year. I think they had the number four defense or something. They were one of the best running teams in football, and yet... They just fell short, and they just fell short. Literally the last week of the season, they just fell short of the playoffs. I think the Colts will be much improved this season with Matt Ryan at helm. And when you look at, remember, the Colts had traded Carson Wentz, and now when you add Matt Ryan into that mix for what they gave up, in total, the Colts ended up trading Carson Wentz a second and a seventh for a second, 
a third that can become a second and Matt Ryan. If that's not the deal of the fucking century, I don't know what is. You trade Carson Wentz. I mean, let's let's let the seconds cross each other out, out right? A second for a second. So basically, Carson Wentz in a seventh for a third that could become a second and Matt Ryan. Like, where's the downside? It's all upside. Great job by the Colts front office there. Another huge, huge move that I still cannot believe is, like, I still don't think it's real. I'm still like, what the fuck is going on? The Kansas City Chiefs traded Tyreek Hill to the Miami Dolphins for a first, a second, a fourth this year, and then a fourth and sixth next year. Huge haul for Kansas City. Huge haul for Kansas City. And now the Chiefs have 12 picks in this year's draft. 12. Way more than anybody else. 12. But let's remember, the Miami Dolphins trading back last year from 3-6 to and picking up that extra first-round pick, which means in totality, the Miami Dolphins traded a second and some mid-to-late-round picks for Jalen Waddell and Tyreek Hill. I mean, that's magic. That's magic. You got to love it. And Hill obviously gets the four-year, $120 million extension with $72 million guaranteed. A lot of that won't become fully guaranteed. I think about $20 million or so doesn't become fully guaranteed until next season. About 50 or so right out the gate. But this is basically you've got Tyreek Hill for five years if you want him. Miami now has the fastest wide receiver duo in NFL history. And Mostert makes it a trio. And in addition to that, I was looking at some interesting stats. And there were only four wide receivers in the NFL last year who had at least six touchdowns and who averaged three and a half yards of separation per route. Two of those wide receivers are Tyree Kill and Cedric Wilson, both of whom are now Miami Dolphins. Also, Rosenhaus. Rosenhaus strikes again. As soon as I heard that Tyreek was on the block, it was in between the Dolphins' jets, I looked and saw who the agent was, Rosenhaus. First of all, Rosenhaus has cashed in huge this offseason. This has got to be his best offseason that he has ever had. But you look at the extent at which with the Dolphins, and that's probably his best relationship. And let me tell you something, he's at all the Dolphin games. I see him every game I go to, and this is this is Miami's inside-inside man. So whenever it involves Rosenhaus, obviously he's going to do what's best for his client, but the relationship he has with Miami is unparalleled, and that's why when we heard the story that the Jets basically had a deal done with Tyreek, they were first to the table, and then all of a sudden Miami got into the mix because because Rosenhaus texted them. He sent them the, hey, you up text? Yo, Chiefs are looking to move my boy to the Jets here. You want you, you want to get in the game? You want to make something happen? Like, and that's what they did. So God bless Drew Rosenhaus. Now here's another monster one that just, 
man, caught me. I remember where I was, what I was doing, and I see the alert come across my phone. Devontae Adams traded to the Las Vegas Raiders for a first and a second. Mind blown. Mind blown. So pick 22 and pick 53, head over to the Green Bay Packers, and it'll be fascinating to see what they use them for. Ah... It's it's kind of a it's a cruel fate, right? It's a twist of irony that Aaron Rodgers complained that since he's been there, they've never used a first round pick on an offensive weapon. Ever. And then watch. They'll do it this year and be like, hey, look what we got you. Yeah, you fucking sent the all pro wide receiver those like my dude off to another team. But yeah, thanks, dipshits. Yeah, you, you really helped it out. In any event, Adams obviously wanted to reunite with Derek Carr. That was always the dream, and he's going to get paid to live the dream. $142.5 million. Five-year extension. $28.5 million a year, which for a hot second before the Tyreek news was like, holy crap, that's you know that's a lot of money. And then the Tyreek Hill deal came through. So in total, nine players who've been elected to 39 combined Pro Bowls were traded this month. There's been 10 major trades with nine of those players sent to AFC teams. The only team, the only trade that involved an AFC player going to the NFC, the only major trade was Carson Wentz. So, again, the AFC just keeps loading up and loading up. There were seven total first-round picks traded in the month of March, which is the most ever in the Common Era draft. And despite these major contracts, again, teams, some of them know what they're doing, and some of them are like, fuck it, let it ride, we'll pay the bill when it's due. So here's some of the base salaries for these contracts and these big moves that we talked about. Tyree Kill, base salary this year, $1 million. Aaron Rodgers, base salary this year, $1.1 million. Von Miller, $1.1. Chris Godwin, $1.25. Matt Stafford, $1.5 million. Christian Kirk, $80 million contract? Yeah, $1.5 million base salary this year. Michael Gallup, $2 million base salary. J.C. Jackson, $3 million. Devontae Adams, $3.5 million, even with the 142.5 five-year mega extension. So, yes, you can move money. Yes, you can slide things around, but the bill always comes due, baby. Always comes due. So some of these franchises will be in the back washing dishes for a couple of years. We'll see how it all plays out. Now, by the way, I was doing some digging as I was looking over the different positions, who's getting all the money, and more specifically, who's not, and maybe who's learning from their mistakes. Do you know what the 20 highest paid running backs all have in common? None of them have won a Super Bowl. None of them. So, what does that say? We don't overpay running backs. Say it with me, class. We don't overpay running backs. Got it. Now, Some unfortunate news that we saw this week is David Ajabo, who we covered extensively in our 
article in our last podcast about edge rushers. The defensive end from Michigan tore his Achilles at his workout the other week. So he was one of the top guys in the draft. And he's expected to make a full recovery, but he's got to have a six-month timetable. So this drops him out of the first round. Someone's obviously still going to take him. He's an immense talent. Like, it's an injury. It's unfortunate it is what it is. Um, But that's definitely going to drop him out of where you're spending first-round money and resources on him. Now, speaking of resources, the New York Jets have four. One, two, three, four, four draft picks. Ah, ah, ah. In the top 40 picks. They have such an opportunity. Do not fuck this up. Do not fuck this up. If Zach Wilson is the guy, and we don't know. He's a don't know. If you missed our dudes, duds, and don't knows, you should check out that episode. It was a good one. But Zach Wilson, right now, he's a don't know. He's a young. He's going to get another chance this year. They're going to rebuild around him. Add to their weapons like Michael Carter and you know some of those receivers they picked up. But this is an opportunity for the Jets to get much better. They've got to hit on at least three of these top 40 picks. They've got to. They've got to turn that page and start getting the Jets going in the, in the right direction. And, you know, we talk about going in different directions. Al Michaels will no longer be on Sunday Night Football. Him and Kirk Herbstreet are headed to Amazon to head up Thursday Night Football. That's right. If you forgot... Thursday night football is no longer an NFL channel thing and a you know regular network thing. It is Amazon now. So hope you got that Prime membership locked and loaded, ready to go. Because the NFL can make money, they're going to do it. So unfortunately, you're going to have to pay for the Thursday night football. Unless, of course, you know, you do your bootleggy things or whatever. We ain't no snitch, so do what you gotta. Now... One of the things that I really want to address before we get to the running back draft class and everything else is I've been a little disappointed with the content on social media as it relates to NFL memes and just general commentary lately. You guys got to take it up a notch. You got to come up with some funnier shit like... I'm not the only one that needs to be entertained. There's a lot, and, and I think it's it's the fault of everybody. They set the bar too high. I mean, there used to be a time, man, where the memes were coming out with the quickness, and I was like, wow, how is this app free? Like, the internet like is just amazing. And then it kind of got like, all right, we still have some bangers every once in a while, but there's a lot of shit out there. It's just a lot of stuff. Like, the random hate on Cowboys, I've talked about it before, is just dumb. Like, they haven't even won anything recently for you to clown on them for. And it's just like, it's an old, dead joke. And especially the memes about police were called because they found a white substance on the field. But police said that it was just the end zone and Team A is not likely to encounter it again this year. Ha ha, because they can't score. And then, like, that joke is dumb and old. Come up with something else. You know what else is old? The absolute slander of Tua Tonga Vailoa is uneducated at best. If you don't like the guy, if you think, "Mm, I'm not sure if he has it, you know, I I don't know that he's the franchise guy, probably not, fine. 
But the like true, true slander, like, like I said, uneducated at best. And I think everyone keeps making jokes about Tua missing a wide open Tyreek Hill. And here's what I don't understand. Tua has the third most accurate deep ball since entering the NFL. So, like, where does this come from? Just because you don't like the guy, so we just make up things that don't really make sense? Because, haha, we pick on someone, it's funny. Like, do you know who led the National Football League last year in throws at or behind the line of scrimmage? His name is Patrick Mahomes. Okay? So, eat my ass, make your takes objective, at the very least, and keep my quarterback's name out your motherfucking mouth. Now, how about the Denver Broncos, who were literally on fire this past week? The stadium caught fire. What is going on? Broncos Nation, I knew we were lit. Like, we're happy about Russell Wilson, but damn, is it that serious? So they got some rebuilding to do. And I've yet to hear the determined cause of said fire, but hopefully it wasn't Ryan the temp in the microwave. Ryan started the fire. That's a little something special for my special people out there. But talking about fire, how about hard knocks? The Detroit Lions, they not only get hard knocks and they get the 2024 draft. I still like Hard Knocks. I don't know why everyone's so down on Hard Knocks. Like, I, I really enjoy it. I mean, I'm a crack fiend for any NFL content. So, of course, you know, I'll take whatever they give me. And thank you, sir. May I have another? Um, but I just, I, I don't get it. I, I love Hard Knocks. And it was interesting. I, I heard a broadcaster this week talking about, yeah, I'm over Hard Knocks. Like, I'm not really feeling it. But, you know, I'd be real more interested if... um. They did it during the season. Like, that's something I would sign up for. Like, I don't know why nobody's ever thought of that. And I'm like, they literally did that this past season. They they did that. That was a thing. They had in-season hard knocks. Like, where were you? So that's, again, when I talk about just having hate to have hate, and it's like, but do you really consume and pay attention, or you're just saying shit to talk out of your ass? But anyways, congrats to the Lions. I think Hard Knocks will be fun. And to the people who are saying, well, why didn't they choose Team A? Why didn't they, why they choose a shitty team or whatever? Like, first of all, I'm not sure if you understand how the Hard Knocks selection process works, but allow me to elucidate. So, there are certain criterias that you have to meet to be excluded from mandatory Hard Knocks. Okay, so the NFL has said to the teams, listen, you all have to become eligible for NFL hard knocks. And when we choose you, you don't get a say. We choose you and that's it. But we will allow you stipulations to get out of it. So, for example, if you have a first year head coach, you're allowed to get out of it. So like, all right, new teams, new head coaches don't have to worry about it. Second, if you have been on Hard Knocks in the last 10 years, you also can get out of it. You don't have to do it. Thirdly, and mostly important, 
If you have made the playoffs in the last two seasons, you don't have to do it. So it's going to be a team that's a bad team because it can't be a team that made the playoffs in the last two seasons. It can't be a team that's been in the that's been in the playoffs the last two seasons or has a new head coach or it can't be a team that's been on in the past 10 years like the Falcons and the Colts, you know, who would have fell into that category. So there were only three teams that could have made it onto Hard Knocks this season. It was between the Jets, the Panthers, and the Detroit Lions. And I'm I'm cool with all three for different reasons. I would have loved to see the Jets personally. I think that would be a really good Hard Knocks. I would have loved to see the Carolina Panthers just because I think it would shine a light on the pure dysfunction going on in the background of that organization. But I'm also excited to see Dan Campbell just completely just eat kneecaps and be completely a talking point for every single podcast that we do during during the Hard Knocks time. So I'm excited, and you should be too. It's extra content. Now, another thing that is happening that I don't think, you know, some people, it's been such a crazy couple of weeks that we have forgotten that free agency is still going on. There's still tons of players out there. And sure, maybe there's only a handful of A or B players, but guess what? The NFL is filled with 80% C players. And those C players could kick your ass on your best day. And they're worst. But when I say C players, I just mean as compared to the elite of the elite at that position. But all of these guys will contribute and will help teams win games. But available right now, I mean, hell, who's still out there? You've got Cole Beasley is out there, Tyran Matthew, Bobby Wagner's still out there, OBJ, Jarvis Landry, Stefan Gilmore, Calais Campbell, Dwayne Brown is out there, Melvin Gordon. I mean, there's a lot, a lot of talent out there. And uh, talking about talent, Daniel Jeremiah recently put his updated top 10 overall prospects in the 2022 NFL Draft. And here's his top 10 prospects as we sit right now. Number one, Aiden Hutchinson, edge rusher. Number two, Ikemekwanu, tackle. Number three, cornerback, Ahmad Gardner, sauce. Number four, safety Kyle Hamilton. Number five, wide receiver Garrett Wilson. Yes, a wide receiver is creeping up into that top five. Number six, edge rusher Trevon Walker. Number seven, tackle Evan Neal. Number eight, another wide receiver, Drake London. Number nine, edge rusher Jermaine Johnson. And number 10, edge rusher Kayvon Thibodeau. Now, that brings us to our running backs, which, of course, you didn't hear any mentioned there because that's not going to be the situation with the running backs. We all know that they're devalued as a whole and... You're not going to see these guys fly off the board. This isn't a Zeke Elliott. Um, this isn't a class where you have those kind of guys. But there are some very special people in this draft. So I would like to run down with you 
our top candidates for the running back position in the 2022 NFL Draft. All right, let's talk running backs. Number one, numero uno, Mr. Brees Hall, come on down. Iowa State Junior, 5'11", 217 pounds. This is one surefire first-round running back, and he's the only one in this draft class that is absolutely worthy of a first-round pick. His field vision, pass-catching skills make him the most NFL-ready running back on our board. By the time Brees Hall left Iowa State, he owned or shared 11 school records, including his four rushes of 50-plus yards in 2021, which tied the record set by, check my notes here, uh, Brees Hall. So, in his career, Brees Hall has amassed 27 100-yard games, and his final game against TCU was his magnum opus. He tallied 281 scrimmage yards and four touchdowns in his collegiate swan song. Over the last two seasons, Brees Hall has rushed for over 3,000 yards and 41 touchdowns with another 482 yards and five touchdowns in receiving. His patience behind the line of scrimmage reminds me of a peak Le'Veon Bell. His performance at the NFL Combine only cemented what all the other NFL teams already thought of him. Hall ran a 4.39 40-yard dash, but out-jumped his entire position group with a 40-inch vert. His broad jump was third at the position with 10 feet 6 inches. And in 800 touches, Brees Hall has only lost three fumbles. He is a true every-down back and ready to contribute right away for a lucky NFL team that gets to grab him. Our next running back is Isaiah Spiller. Texas A&M Jr., 6 feet tall, 217 pounds. Spiller is regarded as one of the best running backs in this draft, and his pass-catching skills make him a diverse player ready to compete at the next level. Although he is just 20 years old, he shows poise and maturity for one of the youngest players in the draft. Spiller says that he has modeled his game after Adrian Peterson and Joe Mixon, among others, and his physical running style should make both of those guys proud. Spiller was one of the top recruited running backs out of high school, and his production at Texas A&M rewarded the scouts with multiple thousand-yard seasons. Unlike the style of a Brees Hall, who is a very patient running back, Spiller is more of a one-cut-and-through-the-hole type of guy. He makes quick decisions and powers through blockers. He declined to run the 40 at the combine and was clocked at a 4-6 during his pro day. Allegedly, he's nursing a hamstring injury that he sustained preparing for the combine, which was one of the reasons he didn't want to run at the combine and why he didn't obviously feel great about his pro day time. The minor injury is not expected to majorly affect his draft stock. However, some teams may be concerned over that less than ideal vertical that he had of 30 inches and his 9 foot 6 inch broad jump, which was last place among running backs. 
His in-game tape, though, is honestly what most teams are going to focus on, as they should. Spiller is athletic, he's elusive, and most importantly, has shown solid production for three years for the Aggies. While some believe he may be a 1B to Brees Hall, we see him going in the first half of the second round. Our next running back is Kenneth Walker III, Michigan State junior, 5'9", 211 pounds. The Doak Walker recipient, Kenneth Walker, is currently listed as the number one running back on PFF's big board. While we aren't as high on him as pro football focus, there is plenty to love about Walker. He may seem unassuming at only 5'9", but he packs a mean punch. His explosiveness and improvisation on the field makes him elusive and hard to contain. Once you hesitate, even for a second, he will make you pay with that 4.38 speed. Just ask state rival Michigan, who gave up 197 yards and five touchdowns to Walker in a Spartan game for the ages. The former Wake Forest running back made the most out of his transfer in three seasons, Walker has hit pay dirt 35 times and gained 2,794 yards. While there are some great raw skills here, we think that Walker needs to gain more experience in the pass game to round out his skill set. Additionally, he will need to be coached up at the next level to quickly identify and use running lanes based on play design. Walker is a wild card for us and will either be an eventual starter or just a role player in a more diverse running back room. The best case scenario is that he lands with a great team who has a veteran running back coach that can help him realize his full potential. Our next running back on the board is Damian Pierce, Florida senior, 5'10", 218 pounds. After our top three running backs, the scouting reports kind of scatter like a house full of teens when someone yells cops. The rankings seem to range all over the place, but at least five well-respected draft outlets have Damian Pierce as a top eight running back in this class. While his production doesn't jump off the page, Pierce is a capable back that has upside as an NFL starter. His strength and tenacity cannot be overlooked. Many running back coaches would love a guy who squats over 700 pounds in their running back room. While he didn't handle the workload as a gator that his contemporaries did, his agility and running style will ensure that he is going to get a chance to show what he can do with volume at the NFL level. While he lacks true breakaway speed with a 4.59, his receiving and pass blocking skills will also get him noticed by coaching staffs and provide Pierce opportunities for him to get on the field. Like a 20-something young woman adjusting to life on her own, Pierce is a project in the works. However, with the right motivation, mentorship, and self-love, he could be live-laugh-loving the start of his NFL career. And that brings us to James Cook. Georgia, senior, 5'11", 199 pounds. Of course, some NFL fans may be familiar with former Miami Central standout James Cook's older brother, Dalvin, who plays for the Minnesota Vikings. The two running backs are similar in stature only. However, James did best his older brother's 40 time at the combine by seven one-hundredths of a second. James is not the every down back that Dalvin is, and this was evident by his time splitting at Georgia. He only had 10 carries five times in his career. Having said that, Cook has great receiving skills 
and is an efficient ball carrier, as he displayed against Michigan in the playoffs last year. Although the Bulldog running back room was crowded, Cook's 6.4 yards per carry and 7 touchdowns as a senior puts him square on NFL draft boards around the league. And how can we talk about one Georgia running back without talking about the other? That brings us to Zamir White. Georgia Jr. Six foot tall, 214 pounds, and Zamir White was part of the running back committee that helped Georgia to a national championship. White has had a harrowing journey in life, and if you want the after-school special breakdown, feel free to Google him or just wait until draft day when NFL Network and ESPN will undoubtedly pounce all over his challenging past and his will to overcome. On the field, though, White has overcome not one, but two torn ACLs to become Georgia's leading rusher as a junior. Many athletes have injury setbacks, but two ACLs before you get to your get your college career on track is worse luck than the guy who bought the Tom Brady last touchdown ball the day before Brady unretired. In any event, the one common thread that comes up about Zamir is who he is as a person. His work ethic, motivation, and character continue to be points of emphasis. When you pair that with what he has done on the field, he makes for one of the most intriguing prospects in this year's draft. He had a strong showing at the Combine with a 4.440, just a hair quicker than his teammate James Cook. There are multiple outlets who have White in their top three running backs this year, so we could see some fireworks come draft time. White has worked extremely hard to get here and will have a chance to make a name for himself as a pro in 2022. Kyron Williams, Notre Dame, sophomore, 5'9", 194 pounds, Despite his size, the Fighting Irish running back is a very tough runner that excels in pass blocking and route running. Scouts may have initially been disappointed with his last place showing at the Combine when he ran a 4.6540 time. Williams was able to improve that mark at his pro day with a 4.5440. While that's not explosive, it's a noticeable improvement and has scouts at least circling back to his game film where his on-the-field speed helped him to back-to-back 1,000-yard seasons with Notre Dame. His former work as a wide receiver in high school adds to his versatility. The term jack-of-all-trades, master-of-none comes to mind here. His value is in his diverse abilities and competencies. Honestly, this is the type of running back that Bill Belichick could turn into a perennial pro bowler. Don't laugh when it happens. Let's talk about our next running back, Tyler Algier. So if Tyler Algier was on a dating app, every college in the nation swiped left. BYU Jr., 5'11", 224 pounds, from walk-on to school record setter. Tyler Algier has had quite a run at BYU. Sure, You wanted the 6'2 physical specimen with a financial portfolio, but sometimes the short, shy guy who makes you laugh is the real winner. This former linebacker turned running back, yes, you heard me right, had 1,800 all-purpose yards last season and 23 rushing touchdowns. Now, don't confuse Algier with a politician's extra phone because he is not a burner. 
His 4.640 time barely registers, but he has good vision and power, and in pass blocking doesn't shy away from contact. Because linebacker, Algier can be a productive back in the right NFL system. Jamal Williams is currently the only BYU running back drafted in the last 20 years, but Algier is hoping to make a strong case to be the second. There's definitely a team out there who will swipe right on him this April. A few other running backs that you guys should keep your eyes on are Brian Robinson from Alabama, Pierre Strong Jr., South Dakota State, Jerome Ford, Cincinnati, Rashad White, Arizona State, Abram Smith, Baylor, Tyler Batty, Missouri, Hassam Haskins, Michigan, Devontae Price, FIU, ran a 4.3840 even after putting 12 pounds on this offseason, and last but not least, Zaquandre White, South Carolina. So those are your running backs. Some guys to keep an eye out. We'll have the full article out this week on regulatorspod.com. But for everyone who made it this far, for everyone who rode with us and listened to this episode, I appreciate the shit out of you. And to prove my undying love for your loyalty, I'm going to enter you into a super secret contest giveaway for our live show on the draft. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm not even going to tell you what the prize is yet. I won't tell you what the prize is. But I will guarantee you this. If you go to our Twitter page, at Regulators Pod, and you retweet what will be our pinned tweet, which will be this episode, I am automatically going to hook you up with a prize come draft night. I'm going to give you something. I don't know what it'll be. Depends on how many people go out and, and spread the word. And then I got to pony up more cash and I got to try to do what I can do. But I'm going to take care of you. Uh, I'm going to do something. So let's get the word out. Appreciate all the retweets. Appreciate all the love. And uh, you know how to find us on Twitter, at Regulators Pod. I love the shit out of you guys. We'll go pour myself another drink. Slancha. You know what time it is.